Welcome to Broadway's Backbone with Brad Bradley, a podcast dedicated to the men and women of the ensemble, the chorus of dancers, singers, and actors that are the foundation of every Broadway musical. These often unsung gypsies are the hardest working people on the boards, but without the proper clothing, some of these characters may never come to fruition. With the help of costumes, they solidify being Broadway's backbone. This is episode 35. Our special guest is costume designer Greg Barnes. Good afternoon, Greg Barnes, and welcome to Broadway's Backbone. How are you? I'm well. You are uh, my very first costume designer. Honored. Well, I'm honored, and uh, most people say that you're their favorite and also one of the nicest people in the business. Oh, my God. They do. I just heard that on the way here. That's incredible. Yeah. At Broadway Bears. Yes, at Broadway Bears. I was like, (laughs) guess where I'm going? And they're like, oh, we love him. (laughs) So I'm going to read your... Uh, your biggest Broadway credits, and we'll go from there. Sideshow, the original, Flower Drum Song, the revival, and Best Costume nominee for a Tony, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, The Drowsy Chaperone, which you have a Tony Award for Best Costume Design, Legally Blonde, Tony nominee, mm-hmm. To Be or Not To Be, Bye Bye Birdie, the revival, Elf, the musical, Follies, the 2011 revival, Tony Award winner for Best <laughs> Costumes. Kinky Boots, Tony Award nominee, but you just won the Olivier Award. Yeah, I did. That's amazing. I know, that was a nice surprise. It was a nice surprise. And it's a, I see it right there, a cute little trophy. <laughs> you have your two little Tonys and one big Olivier. Exactly. They have to be bigger than us, don't they? They do. And heavier. Heavier. That was English. <laughs> uh, Aladdin, Something Rotten, which was also uh, a Tony nominee, and Tuck Everlasting, which is also a Tony nominee. So, uh, I know where you're from, because we're both That's from right. San Diego, California. <laughs> uh, so, uh, how did you get started? I was, uh, you know, I didn't have a direction as a kid in terms of, you know, I wasn't a performer. I wasn't, certainly not a designer. I, I was just a, a person, I was a person who liked to make things, mm-hmm. you know. And I think that a lot of people that do what I do, that's in their DNA. They like to, you know, make things. It could be gardening, it could be cooking, it could be crafting, it could be... And so anyway, I thought I would be a teacher because all my family, I have a huge family because my mom had 10 siblings. Oh, wow. All of my aunts and uncles were school principals and teachers. So that just seemed like what I would do, you know, how when you don't have a vision of your for your life. So anyway, I was taking... uh, I was a lit major at San Diego State University and... uh, I thought, well, if I'm going to be the drama guy in the high school, then I'm going to need to know how to light a show and figure out the scenery and what are the costumes, how will they happen. So I started to take those classes as electives. And in my very last semester, so I'm just about to get out of, out of undergrad, I took a, it was really a costume history class, but they would have you design, um, they would give you a text like, say, School for Scandal. And you would go out, it wasn't designed per se, you would find 18th century research and then turn it into, well, this is what Lady Teasel might wear and this is what... So anyway, I was going through that process and um, it was an academic class and the teacher said, there's a designer coming to San Diego State to talk to our master's students and you should go and talk to him. And, you know, I didn't, I I'll literally, I, I don't think I even understood that design was a career. I thought it was a hobby. It's, ah. it's trick or treat. It's how you know. I I just didn't know, 
so I sort of said, well, why would I, what, what would I have to say to him? And she said, no, you have something you should go talk to him. His name is Robert Morgan, and I'm forever indebted to him because he totally changed my life. And um, I went and talked to him, and I had these projects. I had designed uh, one thing that semester, and he said, go to New York. You're the one. Wow. Yeah, it was just, and I, you know, uh, Kathy and Jimmy is a very dear and old friend of mine. Um, most people know her from Sister Act, but you know, in a million things. Yeah. She um, was a dear friend of mine, and she was actually waiting in the hallway, and the door was ajar, and she overheard the interview. And so when I came out, I, I was sort of befuddled, and I thought, what the heck is that guy talking about? And she said, this is somebody showing you that you have the possibility of a life that we all crave and you can't imagine. So if she hadn't been there, I probably wouldn't have acted on it. But I went home that night and I said to my folks, hey, this is really this, I had a chat with this guy, he's an incredible designer, he's working with Jack O'Brien at the Old Globe, they were doing Midsummer Night's Dream. I'd seen a million of his shows and uh, that he did with Jack. They were very oftentimes collaborators and anyway so I came to New York a couple of years I got finished my credential and I came to New York and went to NYU got my master's wow so that's how I got here and ironically even though uh, I didn't think I would be a teacher but I did teach for the next almost 20 years at NYU in their undergraduate design program so while I was trying to find my way as a designer I had a job that uh, well, there was a bit of security, that it was great. But more than that, I had a weekly class where the kids, and I was pretty close to their age in a way, yeah. you know, four or five years older, and they say, what do you think about this? What's your philosophy about that? And I realized I don't have a philosophy. I better get one. So, um, but that was the blessing of teaching was that I learned so much more from the kids than I certainly ever taught anybody. So. Um, anyway, so I taught and I designed and did everything I could to get to today, I guess. Well, well I'm so glad that you're here today. <laughs> uh, where in San Diego uh, did you work and did you design there before you moved to New York? Yeah, um, after uh, that meeting with Robert Morgan, um, I did everything I could for the next year and a half. Because I didn't sew, I didn't draw, I wasn't really aware in a way of um, fashion or design other than, well, I'll restate that in a way because after I got into it, I realized that it was in my DNA because I always remember, I have an incredible, I can't remember what I ate for dinner, I can't remember people's name as I'm shaking their hands, but I can remember clothing, character, you know, uh, through clothing from the time I was a kid. You know, I can describe. I remember one time we went to see, um, you know, Starlight. Yes, that's opera. where I got my start. Did you really? Yes. Oh my gosh, okay. So you know the size of that outdoor venue. Yes. Huge. I don't know. What do you think it seats? It's 4,000 seats. So 4,000 seats. I'm in the back row with my friend Irene, and we're, we're watching, I think it was Oklahoma, and I said, this was in the 70s, late 70s, and I said, hey, that chorus girl is wearing your skirt from the production you did at Grossmont College. And she said, no. And she get, she had a little binoculars. Yeah. And she said, oh my God, that's my skirt. It's just a skirt. Like, how did you know? And I, 
I said, I have no idea. I just uh, out of you know this, and you know how many people are in the were in the cast. Oh and yeah, epic, right? Now I have to say though, in terms of costume spotting, I do not hold a candle to Emily Sue, who you know. Oh, I do. Know. <laughs> I don't know how she, she is does it. A genius. A genius. She remembers every sock from every. I mean, she's that's unparalleled. Yes, <laughs> her wardrobe alone. I mean, she's that's right. Gone. I bow to her, but but uh, maybe second to her. Second I, I remember. Emily Sue. I do remember clothing. Well, I know uh, when I made my Broadway debut was the first time I actually had stuff designed for me and shoes designed for me, and that's when I knew I made, especially shoes designed for me. Uh, when you're designing for the ensemble, what is the importance of the ensemble when it comes to your vision? Well, you know, I think it always it always comes back to the storytelling and to always the director, and they so much shape and inform. Uh, they give you a, a, the ground plan of where you're going to go. So if it's a show like, say you're doing No, No, Nanette, you know, you're going to have a different kind of dance or a different kind of look than if you're doing something that's very character driven. So where the, the ensemble may be a more, uh, uh, have more variety in terms of their shapes and maybe their ethnicity, whatever. You right. know? Um, so I think that the thing that I try to do is to treat the, always treat the chorus like they're the star. They, mm. they are the equally the star. Um, I never let their clothes just be a backdrop to the star. I, you know, obviously you have to focus the storytelling and you have to make sure that the audience knows where to look when they need to follow the story. But in terms of the work that goes into developing the ensemble wardrobe, I take it really seriously. And, um, you know, it's funny because, you know, I've done the, for instance, I've done the Christmas show for a million years. I don't do it now, but I used to. And, um, they're, you know, they're with the Rockettes, yes. your job is to make them look identical, even though they are, of course, wildly differently shaped. Right, yeah. Their proportions, their heights. Uh, so you try to think of something that will make them look absolutely uniform, and that informs some of the choices and lengths and the, the shapes and the palette. And, but uh, that's a very specific task that it doesn't really come into the Broadway you know when you're working on a Broadway show right because that is a big difference because in that show you want everyone to look spectacular mm -hmm. and then uh, in something like Elf you want them to look everyone look completely different and weird and funky exactly exactly how much um, does do you figure out like that character in the background you want that person to be nerdy or I mean how much is that informed by you the director and or the actor it's really a collective I mean you know it's funny uh the oftentimes the director you know the way by the way it's cast just just stereotypically by type when that actor comes into the room you know that oh they are the they're the character person they're right. the ones that and but I always approach that with um, I never try to make anybody be a visual joke it may to the audience perspective be extra heightened or but we always talk about the character with great reverence I, mm. I always want everybody to be beautiful, and I don't mean that in the fashion sort of sense of beautiful, but I want them to feel beautiful. I remember, I can give you an example of it. We had, Great. we were working on the original production of, of Sideshow. Uh, her name was Verna. She played the fat lady in the, in the Sideshow. And she was, you know, a bit overweight. My job was actually to make her look bigger than she was. Mm. And she had been, uh, been I, I understand now, I haven't seen her, but I understand she's actually like, 
a petite little, you know, size now. Wow. Uh, it's what's 18, 19, 20 years later. But oh, gosh. At the time, she had gained weight. She wasn't used to being in that body. So every fitting we had, there would be uh, tears, and, and I would talk her through what I was doing and why I was doing it, and how at other times in the play, we would, she would have a different shape. She would inhabit a different kind of body, even though obviously it's her body. Right. And always by the end, it was so joyful. She would give me a big hug, and she'd say, you know, I get it. I feel beautiful. Even though she's wearing, you know, a satin corset where the where the it's made to look as if she's outgrown it, and the cords that tie it oh. together are all blown out. And yeah. So, uh, I try to honor the actor's uh, experience in the fitting room. You know, and and what you don't know when somebody walks in the room is what their past is, unless you know them from other shows. But they may have had ten experiences where they didn't feel respected or listened to treated almost like a like a, a, a cog in a machine so I never let that happen in fact I even in the fitting room I always make myself as small as I can I sit down purposefully I kibby you know kiki with the actor while yeah. they're in the fitting if they put something on and I think it looks extraordinary I never say you look amazing until they say they look amazing Oh. I try to let them, you know, it, it's it's all part of the process of making the actor leave himself in a funny way outside the room and become this character that we are trying to. And oftentimes those things are very closely related. So anyway, uh, in, in the fitting room, that's part of how I try to, you know, honor the, the work that they're going to do. And what can be tricky about it, I have to say, is that often when they come into the room, it's five weeks before you've started rehearsal. Right. So there's no, they have no idea. They, they don't know that the meetings that I may say I've had with Casey or with Jerry Mitchell or the people that I oftentimes collaborate with. Uh, and I'm and, and leading that, you know, sort of without them really having been in the room, being able to feel like there's flexibility for what they're developing. So it's complicated. It is. I know you said that it's oftentimes a first step in a character development, mm -hmm. which I think I haven't ever heard someone put it like that. Yeah. I remember when we were developing Legally Blonde, Annalie Ashford came in and she uh, said, you know, I'm assuming that Jerry will have us, you know, really flesh out these characters because on the page we are a collective of sorority sisters right. from Los Angeles. And so I said, well, talk to me about that. If you were in a sorority, what, you know, and she, she has a ladybug fascination. So, of course, we write all this stuff down and we regroup and we think what's relevant to this character that she's going to play. And the next time she comes in, we have a diamond encrusted ladybug keychain. And it's just on her belt loop and nobody in the audience is aware that that is a detail that we are giving uh, to Annalie to either reject if she said, oh, you know... That's that's me. That's not really her. It goes in the it goes the back in the jewelry drawer. Right. But it, I try to, um, you know, it, it's funny. Lisa Guida, who you talked to, and is such an incredible oh, yeah. inspiration. We were doing Elf, and I, I asked her what her character's name was in the in, in one of her characters in the in the play in, in the office. She was a secretary, and she said, oh, "I think my name is Iris." So the next time she came in, I had found a little enamel Iris brooch. 
and we put that on her lapel of her of her dress and she you know you could just tell it has meaning it, right. it, it gives a, a kind of uh, and maybe sometimes it gets me into trouble I don't know I think sometimes directors think oh my god there's so much detail and I, I have to be looking at the elf right. <laughs> why the she you know <laughs> so that I can't I do kind, kind of sometimes get into trouble but you know I think it's worth it you yeah know, no you know? I do too well I have a question that comes with that like in the discussion with an actor communicating with you in the fitting room about a character and and the development, how much can a person say, and then also the tone of it. I feel like mm. so many actors are so disrespectful and they show up late to fittings and they don't they don't see the importance of it, where it's an opportunity to come in and to a room and be like, you know what, this is my character. I, I think that, you know I mean, I have a Latin flair. You know, right. there, there's a missed opportunity mm -hmm. as opposed to, a, oh, mm -hmm. I just have to give my measurements. Yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean, it. I, I think that the, fitting room you know sometimes I guess maybe stereotypically you think oh it's a battleground that somebody is going to come in and but I think if you listen to people that's you know and, and ironically not just to actors but from the very beginning like when you sit down with the director um, sometimes they haven't they, they, it's, they don't do what I do so they don't think in those terms and you may ask a hundred questions that they they feel compelled to answer even though the answer ultimately, once the process has happened, may be completely different, or the, you know, uh, the actually the opposite of what they maybe thought it would be, which is why in a new piece you have a lot of changes out of town, and that's always tricky. Um, so with that, when the actor comes in, if they, I, I have another example. Yeah. We were working on Dirty Rotten Scoundrels at the Old Globe, and Joanna Gleason, who I love, she. Uh, was putting on the mock-up and I'm you know sitting outside the curtained room I spent a lot of my time sitting in hallways waiting for people to put their brassieres on <laughs> and she kind of flung the curtain back and she said should we go ahead and fit this or should we just turn it into a swing coat and you know in the moment you think what's the best choice and I and her you know comfort her intelligence I say swing coat let's readdress this at the next fitting and that's what we did so, you know, you don't always, that's not always the answer. And certainly if it's in the ensemble and they say, oh, I, I can't expose my midriff, I have a terrible, you know, I, I'm very uncomfortable with my midriff. And you know that 10 other people are wearing this garment and you can't, you really don't have the luxury of saying, we'll hang a little curtain over that. Right. You know, so, so there are times where the answer has to be a different answer. And that's the harvest, I think. Um, because sometimes the course is meant to be a unit, you know, yes. that it, without, in a funny way, much more personality than that you're the brunette, you're the redhead, and you're the blonde, you know. Yeah. So, um, but if you have the uh, opportunity, and I have to say I've been very lucky in terms of the kinds of projects I have worked on where the course is meant to be, the ensemble is meant to be treated as individuals. Which I think is great. It's you know what I mean? the best. Especially because in a crowd scene, you, you don't need everyone to look the, exactly the same exactly you need the different yeah crowds it's my favorite kind of project is there's two things that i love one is where you get to explore within a single evening people that are rich people that are poor people that are uh in showy costumes people where there's an incredible variety where it isn't like every single scene everybody is dressed to the nines you know that's obviously great too because yeah. you pay attention to it um but i love that kind of 
project where there's immigrants and it, Flower Drum Song was that way. There were on stage costumes, immigrants, and mm. a lavish wedding. It had so so much variety to the palette of the design choices that you got to make. And then the other thing is what we were just talking about is that when where everybody is an individual and not thought of as a clump. Which I think is great. I mean it sets the period, it sets everything else and you get to see the whole history of this. Mm-hmm. I remember one time I, I went to, I don't even know why I was there, it was held in a Broadway theater and it was a salute to Hal Prince. I've never worked with Hal, um, although I did interview with him once, which was, uh, I learned so much that afternoon about, well, just about the theater, but also about how to m- maneuver in some way through it gracefully because mm. he, uh, so it was very inspiring. But I went to see this event that was honoring him and they had a little clip of him uh, on a, a screen came down and he was talking about the development of Evita and he said in this clip he said I told the ensemble on the first day I don't want to deny the work that I want you to do in terms of who's a milliner in the piece who's a who is an adulterer who is I want you to flesh that out but our job here ultimately is to present the mass the mobs of the populace of Argentina mm. And I thought that was the most, I thought, boy, if I was an actor, I would so appreciate that because you know that there's something at stake that's bigger than your personal, uh, the decisions that you're going to make about the character. And oftentimes that conversation doesn't happen. So certainly when somebody comes in, you're never going to say to them, you know, your job is to be in the background. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You're never going to say that. And, and, but because that comes from the top, then when you, if you have, I didn't do that show obviously, but if I, if I was in that fitting, I could refer to it. I could say, while I don't intend for you to just be anonymous in this storytelling, um, maybe maybe the palette and other things will help serve what I think Hal was saying, and yet give you the experience of feeling unique. Uh, I like that. It was great. Yeah. I thought, you know, I, I, I'm often not in the room. You know, we, we run around it's very parallel once the rehearsals start we very rarely get to have time really the luxury of getting to come and watch the actors working yeah. so that's again why the ram- I'm rambling around a little bit but it's why the dress the fitting room experience is so crucial yeah because you know that might be it you may see a person two times three times and never in the rehearsal hall and uh, and then all of a sudden you're in tech exactly yeah so there must be a way, uh, a good way of saying, "Oh, this this hurts. This is too tight. I can't really breathe." Oh yeah. Without it being coming across caustic. Oh yeah. I think the more honest, and in terms of a- fitting room etiquette, I say let it all hang out. Say what you think. Say it respectfully, and because there's nothing worse than suffering in silence, and then in the middle of the tech at the end of a twelve-hour day, somebody's crying at the center stage saying, is anybody from wardrobe in the house? You know, it's like they don't even know your name. That's the worst, you know, because you feel like, uh, uh, you know, you've done, you've hopefully done a lot to make everybody love. You know, it's funny, the word costume, even though that is my title in a a program, I like to think, I wish it said clothing because I don't even like the word costume. I feel like it should be the clothing that Reno Sweeney puts on to play this part in, you know, it's Reno's clothing. It isn't really a costume. And I think with the ensemble, that is a helpful way to think about it. Right. And so if you were, if you were at Saks 
not in my fitting, or when you were trying on a pair of pants and you felt fat or that your butt didn't look good, or you would address, you would get rid of those pants and you would keep looking for the pants that fit you so you felt beautiful, mm. sexy, whatever it is that yeah. you So I try to get to the heart of that kind of thing in the fitting room. I ask a lot of questions, you know, I, I, I always ask what's, you know, you can have somebody standing in, in a, a fitting room that is, to your eye, absolute perfection. Their proportions, their, their body shape, everything sing, flawless, you know, just the perfect specimen. And they will think that their ears are too big, and that's all they're thinking about. Yeah, no, I, right? I'm like that. All I see sometimes is my hairline. It's like, always the floor. My yeah. belly, or, you know. Mm -hmm. And it's okay to say something like that to you without it um, uh, feeling like, oh, insecure, or the, I mean, it just. No, I think it's, I, I, I you, and I may think, oh boy, they're really insecure, but the, you can't deny the feeling. Yeah. And I understand it myself. I, I remember years ago when I first went to the Tony Awards, which I think was Flower Drum Song, um, I had a suit made. And I was so glad that I did because I had to stand there in the fitting room there and look at, oh, it was the worst experience of my life. I wanted to be beamed out of that room. Oh, wow. And I was with lovely people. It was yeah. actually a gift that my uh, incredible associate was giving to me. The tailor was doing it for free. But, the, but having to stand in that mirror in your underwear while you're putting your suit on is so, so difficult. It's like so primal almost. Yeah. You, know, you're, you're, you are, you are there, there's something about that that is uh, not to be denied. So um, I remember once um, uh, I was doing a fitting on Flower Drum Song and Telly Leong was in the ensemble. And... He had just gotten out of college, so he had that little extra college weight that people have. Oh, you know, yeah. there is a thing. Yes. When you see a Broadway performer, they traditionally, if they are a dancer especially, not always, but usually they are 0% body fat. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they give you that. But Telly was a little bit overweight, and he had this costume that was white, Chinese brocade, hip hugger, bell-bottom pants with a crop sailor top. It was the hardest thing to wear oh. right sort of the 60s take on it and it meant to look vulgar and tacky and he's looking at the mirror at his midsection and I'm sure he's thinking there's not enough time for me to get this you know body in shape to make this not feel embarrassing and so I'm talking to him I'm saying you can cheat the waist and we'll give you this kind of a belt and but there are five other guys wearing this this goes back to what I was talking yeah. about earlier and there were some tears, I, as, I, as I remember. Maybe they were my tears. I don't know. <laughs> and of course, now Telly, you could put him in a, you know, a thong, and he, yeah. would, he would, you know, he's so completely gorgeous. Yeah. And he was then, too. But that, there is that moment, and I've had a couple of people crying in, in a fitting room, and that's, um, that's the hardest, I have to say. My, my, so, no, I, I say, tell the truth, you know. Um, but also... I would also say that sometimes being a, a good collaborator is also important, you know, to listen to. You know, you can say, I think I have a big butt. Right. And if like this happened, uh, again, I'm, I'm sort of st uh, telling tales in a funny way out of school, but I was fitting Linda Griffin, who is an incredible, witty, funny, 
like she's the best person to have in a, in a chorus. I love her <laughs> so much. We were doing Drowsy Chaperone and she was playing a maid and she was sort of saying, oh, you know, you know, it's the 20s. You know, it's always that everybody thinks, oh my God, it's the 20s. It's the worst, the hardest thing to wear. <laughs> and I said to her, you know, if you will let me put this apron tie right around your biggest part of your hips, and it's white on a maroon colored dress. Yeah. And if we get, get it right, if we fit it right, it will look so sexy in a kind of apple-bottomed way. And she was like, okay, okay. Let's see where that leads. Let's see where that takes us. And it's one of my favorite costumes from The Drowsy Shepherd. Ironically, there's a lot of flash in that show, but yeah. to think that the maid would end up being one of your favorite costumes. But, um, but it was because she was willing to go there with me. So there is something about being a good listener. You know, I wouldn't want a big white apron tie around my butt for sure. Yeah. But um, uh, and she looked spectacular. You know. Oh, I love that show. <laughs> <laughs> I did too. <laughs> uh, so you also said that sometimes you can tell a personal things about a person, like they have bulimia or eating disorders because their body mm -hmm. dysmorphia and mm -hmm. then all of that type of stuff gets kind of shoved into your fitting room. Yeah, I mean, people come in and if you are, you know, I've been doing this now so 36 years, so I am a pretty good observer of the room. Mm. And... You know, you, you, you do think if somebody comes in, for instance, I had it happen, where um, uh, it was a woman, a dancer, beautiful body. She was a ballerina, actually. and But I thought, oh, her hair is so dry. That was the first thing that caught and caught my eye. And anyway, it turned out that she was bulimic. And that in the course of the tech, and the tech is so hard on anybody. Anybody, you know, yeah. Right? And she... Uh, ended up leaving the show and now you know that, that it's not my place I'm not a therapist I'm not uh, but you do see it and I and I even even it becomes a dilemma of what do you share about the fitting room you know I try to if, if somebody's let's I'll use the word difficult although I never think anybody's difficult in the fitting room even if they've tied me up and lit me on fire wow <laughs> I think you are very nice <laughs> I think I know they're doing what they need to do, and let's play this out and see what happens. You know, short of like being disrespectful, and that never happens really. Um, but uh, do you share with the director? Oh boy, so, so and so was really late. So and so didn't wear underwear. So and so, how much of it? Well, is... repeat those two things. Yeah, late and wear underwear. Late and wear underwear. So be on time. Be on time. And wear underwear. <laughs> <laughs> I know the simplest thing, and that those are probably the two when you talk about you know the feeling of like maybe being feeling disrespected those are the two things when people are really really late and then don't acknowledge it and then when they don't wear underwear you think really yeah, did you not realize what you were trying <laughs> to do unless they wanted to well you know that yeah sometimes you have to remember uh, that, another thing you said that I thought was great is you said sometimes uh, principals come in and they're completely shut off but ensemble people come in and they're completely open and ready for the adventure yeah, I think that there's maybe, this this may be completely wrong, so I, I say it with qualifications, but I think sometimes when the principal comes into the room, oftentimes if you're blessed with a glorious voice, not to say that people in the ensemble don't have that skill as well, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to also look like, you know, a, a Stroman perfect showgirl. You maybe don't have that body type. Mm. 
And, and the role you're playing is meant to be devastatingly beautiful. So, or you don't think you're devastatingly beautiful, even if you are. So you really have to, um, with a principal, uh, you have to pay attention to the room. Very, I mean, it's, I, I hope Jan doesn't mind. I can use Jan Maxwell yeah, as an sure. example. Jan, you know, she's, I've worked with her two times, been blessed to work with her two times. She's absolutely the, the thing. She is the total thing. So uh, amazing. But she, I think, in her head thinks that she has a larger, that her legs are not, I would just say they're not her favorite feature. And when I worked with her the first time, I, I realized we were fitting a 1930s evening gown, which is, you know, everybody wants to wear and own a 1930s evening yeah. gown. And when she put it on, I could tell that she was just looking like a laser at her legs. She was just trying to make sure that she felt protected, that she felt beautiful, that I wasn't, and that the, the collectively in the room, we weren't making decisions that were going to make her have to think about that when she's delivering the performance, because as you know, She's giving 150% yeah. towards the character and the moment. And she doesn't want to be distracted by any thoughts of, do my legs look heavy or fill in the blank. And so in the course of the fitting, as you're talking through what you're doing and where you're going and what the, what the real fabric might be, because of course you're in a muslin or in some kind of a mock-up, once she was comfortable, she raised her head up and looked at herself, her total self in the mirror. And I saw it happen uh, in, I think in the first thing we did together, she had maybe five or six costumes and then in Follies, you know, which we did, she had two. But I could see that there was a place where she, in terms of her process, I learned so much from her, but uh, Jan came into the room and Phyllis walked out of the room. Oh. Right? And part of that journey was Really, Bernadette Peters does it as well. She doesn't just look in the mirror straight on. She's all she's examining all the angles. She's very savvy to this experience of how you're going to be photographed. You're going to be seen from all these angles. How does this look when I do that? How does it look when I sit down? And I think that um, back to Jan, she's uh, just an absolute inspiration. But it, she has to go through this process. And if she, I think. I hope I don't. She doesn't mind me speaking for her. But if I think if she didn't feel like my my laser beam issue, my initial instinct isn't being addressed, it's hard to move forward. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes. So, and that happens with an ensemble person too. You know, um, you can tell people. There, we we respond. Uh, I think we all like to think we're very. You know, we are very unique, but that. You know when you, when they when they feel beautiful. Oh, it just comes it radiates. Absolutely. Out. You I'm, know when they <clears throat> you know when they understand. This is another thing about uh, uh, you mentioned it actually, but the the what a great honor it is to have clothes made for oh. you when you're the name and the tag. Yeah, that's when like, you get like years later regionally. That's right. Like you're like, look, my name's in this tag. That's right. It's awesome. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> And, and uh, the fact that from that point on, say you're in a part of a big hit, the, the Brad Bradley track mm -hmm. is going to wear those pants yep. and that they're going to look for a guy that has that, something about your quality, that that's what they look for. And I think that myself, every time I'm in the fitting room, I think, boy, this is almost hallowed ground because uh, it costs a lot of money to make a costume and it takes so many people to, you know, you have drapers and finishers and painters and beaters and, you know, uh, ex 
past that, cobblers and milliners and feather people and all of these arts are coming together to create a sort of a vision of, uh, and it's a huge honor to be in those rooms. Yeah. Well, speaking of visions, one of the biggest visions I've seen of you is the opening of Act Two of Aladdin. <laughs> it's just oh my God. unbelievable. So, I mean, just on broad strokes, how many costumes is, is in that? And, I mean, researching that type of period, how much goes into 150 costumes oh in gosh. one number? Yeah, it's not that many. Oh, okay. It's, it's Seems 80. like it is. It's 80. 80. Oh, only yeah. 80. It's only 80. <laughs> and it's they're worn by, I think there are 12 men and 7 ladies. So, 19 ensemble members wear 80, 78, I think it is, costumes in three and a half minutes. And, uh, you know, it, it's funny, one thing that you're, so, so from the beginning, you know, obviously that is a total collaboration with your director, choreographer, um, with Casey, in this case, um, who comes up so much in these interviews, and I love him, so I've known him forever. Did I've, you know him in San Diego? Oh yeah, I have, a, I have a, a, a very strange, almost Twilight Zone anecdote about Casey. The Old Globe in, in the late 70s was, um, you know, a very, you know, respected and established theater, but they weren't operating maybe on the national kind of level that they are now. They did a production of The Robber Bridegroom. Brian Stokes Mitchell was the lead. I was actually in it, which is so random. But really? I, mean, I have a really loud singing voice. I think they just needed somebody loud. <laughs> and Casey was still in high school. He's about five or six years younger than I am, and he was played goat. And I was in the course and understudied Brian Stokes Mitchell. Are you dying? Oh, I love that. I know, I apologize, Brian. And thank God he never went out because I don't even, I don't think I knew what an understudy was. I don't remember learning a line or having a rehearsal. <laughs> it would have been, it, that would have been a canceled performance. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So I met Casey as a kid and uh, adored him. He's, his, he's such a joyful guy. He is. And we didn't, I moved here pretty, maybe a couple of years after that had happened. And, and I didn't stay friends with Casey, but I mean, friends, we were always friends, but I didn't, we weren't in each other's pockets. And, but it seemed like after he started working on Broadway, which took a bit of time, it yeah. didn't happen right away. It felt like every show I'd go see, there would be Casey. Casey's covering this role. Casey's playing the dad and that he's dancing over there. He's, yeah. You know, he was that guy. And uh, so uh, I was so proud of him. You know, it's a stupid thing to say that you're proud of somebody. Oh, I don't think but, so at all. Right? I, I just, love that. Like it's, I just would, felt like a proud father. And I, like I say, I barely knew him. Um, but we ended up doing a project together. He was choreographing a, a, thing, a, a tribute to Sinatra at Radio City Music Hall that Des Mackinac directed. And... He brought me, and I had never worked with Des before, and, and Casey was one of the early things that he choreographed. So, you know, just by fate, that, you know, he, I connected with Casey again in a, in, a, in, a, in a different way as a collaborator and as a closer kind of, a different kind of dialogue than you would have just as, as a, a pal. And then his career, within a year and a half, exploded. So his, his um, incredible, uh, career has been my blessing and good fate to be attached to him so you're his go-to yeah he and and uh and jerry you know yeah. Mitchell, they both you know obviously you know casey works with ann roth who i want to be someday i have none of the qualities 
to really make that happen, but if I could, that's who I'd be. Well, a lot of designers, if they could, want to be you. So. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. Uh, and then Jerry Mitchell, I've done, you know, so many projects with him, and I, uh, you know, that's, they're, they're both, I'm so lucky, you know, they're, oh, they're yes. both the most joyful, lovely people to work with. They're and so my... when he said, I want 27 Oh, million right, million back, to, back to Hold Aladdin. Up. I know, I'm oh my God. Hold it back. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so the, the thing that you know from the get-go is that th this is the terrible thing about the Prince Ali parade is that it means that the actors have to give up their intermission because oh. they've got to put on four or five costumes. And they're all underdressed. They're all underdressed. Yeah. There's literally some of the, some of the exits and re-entrances are seven seconds and you're completely changed by the time you come back in the door. So it was, uh, you know, it's funny working on Aladdin. I think it, I think in development it was probably five years, and I turned down. I think I counted once twenty three jobs to be a part of it, because it was that demanding in terms of the scope of it and the functioning of it, and the. And then when we got into the Broadway, you know, we did it in Seattle, right? And I thought it was a very handsome and beautiful production, but it wasn't what we intended to do in New York. So I. Uh, so there, there was so much to learn about the development of it, and 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 uh, it's such a you know the, you asked about the research part of it, and I love that part of it. I actually love every part of being a designer. It's you know it's uh, I'm definitely doing what I was meant to do. I think oh. in this life, um, I love the research. I love the drawing and painting. I love the actors. I love the actors. Can I say that one more time? Yes, please. I thought about this uh, last Sunday at the closing of Tuck. And I had seen it, you know, it hadn't run long enough to what, you know, on opening night and one other time I, I sat in. On that, on last Sunday night, I thought these actors have collectively, you know, made this thing so bountiful, just bountiful with pathos and joy. And it just, it was the kind of performance where I thought, God, I'm lucky to know these people. Yes. You know? And I remember when I worked on Dirty Rotten Scoundrels at the Globe, where we started in San Diego, it, I always thought it was so hilarious. We came here, I laughed through the previews, I laughed through opening night, I laughed through the Tony Awards, and then sometime in the summer, I went back, uh, and I was just, my jaw dropped. I thought, it takes a lot of time to make these things run like a Rolls Royce. Yes, it does. Right? Because somebody, it's, it's the balance of the whole thing, right? And I thought, I just sat there sobbing through a comedy at, in absolute, just astonished at how fine they all were mm -hmm. and what they had brought to the table. Just that thing fired like a, you know, not a, not a second felt un, unfleshed out or you know, every single person just operating at this very high level. And I felt that at Tuck on Sunday. With something like that, you have a show running now with Kinky Boots, which is like a huge hit, and then you just won the award for it. The costumes are stunning, and it's a very celebrate, celebratory and successful, and you're happy. And then now Tuck just closed, and yeah. it's a heartbreak. How, how do you deal with having to do that? Because that's your, your work and your hard work mm. I said hard work twice your heart's up there on the stage <laughs> yeah. just as much as everyone else's yeah. you know there's so 
I think there's so much to learn about that part of it, how to handle disappointment, how to handle, actually handle success, how to handle the joy, the sorrow. It's, a, it's funny, I think in some ways, people, even though we like to think that we want to live in balance on a, a continuum of uh, psychologically and emotionally, that we're mm. all in balance, but the truth is we all crave, I think, you don't appreciate the highs if you don't have the lows. So on a thing like Tuck, I thought about, uh, uh, believe me, by the time I walked up those stairs uh, from the mezzanine, I was an emotional train wreck. Mm. So it wasn't like I was, you know, in the moment I wasn't um, thinking, all things come to an end. I wasn't that uh, flip about it. But the truth is all things do come to an end. And so I thought, you know, this thing, I, I, I can use Drowsy Chaperone, it closed, I think it ran about a year and a half. And I think almost 90% of that company was still in the show. And that's rare, you know. Yes. People give their notice sometimes on opening night. And I remember thinking, in a way, as hard as it is, I want this to run forever, but it's not gonna run forever. And the fact that it went out with all of those people still there, Beth and Danny and, you know, I, I shouldn't name names because they were all there and they were all so amazing. Right. I thought, this is as fine as, again, this is as fine as it could be. This is like a feast. Um, and so for talk, you know, it had, what, three weeks or whatever it had. Maybe. Yeah. But uh, I, I'm so you know, proud, obviously, to be a part of it. And I loved it so much. It touched me the, the, from the beginning, from the first workshop, it touched me. So... Um, I thought, well, it didn't run for two years, but the end result is the same. Is that, <laughs> is that tough? No, it is, it is good. It's just, I know it's just so, it is a heartbreaking thing. And your yeah. work on the show was beautiful. Yeah. Uh, and it, it was Tony nominated. And it's just, it's hard because other people say it's time for it to close when it's yeah. not. Yeah. It might not, not be ready. Right. Time. Sure, you want more people to have experienced it. Yeah, and, and you know what's funny? Another thing about you know sometimes like I can I can contrast all the, ex the the experience from myself of working on Aladdin and then of working on Talk. On Aladdin, you're given you know a, a, a huge roster of associates and assistants, and you have a nice big budget to deal with. And uh, and on Talk, at least for Atlanta, and and the, and a lot of that stuff came to Broadway with us. I was buying stuff on eBay, going out to my friend Jeff's in Brooklyn and dyeing old tablecloths to turn into vests. And, wow. Uh, I, <laughs> uh, you know, it was a very hands-on. In a way, uh, I haven't maybe been that hands-on since I used to, uh, I worked for a decade at the paper mill. And those jobs, at that time, you know, I was a lot younger then too. But, to, you know, I was, um, there's a, there, you're making it happen in a different way, you know. Uh, in a very hands-on way, and um, and I have to say that's part of my my attachment to it is that I was so invested in it, you know. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes Broadway's mean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of paper mill, um, you worked there for ten years. I saw Follies. There, oh my god! And I really loved it. It was the, one of the the first times I ever was ever exposed to it. Oh, uh huh. But I mean, she's not in the ensemble. She's a legend. But uh, Ann, Ann Miller, I mean, oh we just have God. to talk about that. That was thrilling as uh, a person. How was that experience? Okay, 
Well, we we should probably do a part two interview for me oh, to talk okay. about Ann Miller. Okay. But when I when I you know I've never met her, of course, and I, we had decided that uh, this was Robert Johansson who directed it. He wanted the the guests at the party. The the funny thing about Follies is that what you notice in a funny way from the design is the spectacular part of it but really the job is to dress those people at the party that is right. the, the the heart of it and the crux of it you want to get that as right as you can so we had just he had decided and i you know was collaborating with him that that, that he wanted them to be in jewel tones so the space was going to be dark it's this is more a technical thing than it is a character driven thing and we ran out of colors like lilian was going to be in red montevecchi she was mm. interested in red and Phyllis Newman was going to be whatever. And so we thought, well, why don't we put Ann Miller in black? You know, because it'll look great in the number. And again, it's not character driven. It's just more of a technical, how to focus the story with the palette. So I called Ann Miller and she says, literally, I said, uh, hello, I'm Miss Miller. I'm Miss Greg Barnes. I'm, she goes, well, hello, Greg. It's little Annie Miller from Hollywood, California. That's her... That's how she oh starts the conversation. <laughs> I said, well, hello, little Annie Miller. And she says, um, what am I going to wear, honey? And I said, well, you know, we were thinking that maybe you, you, know, you, you might wear black. And she says, black? I'll look like shit in that. I should wear red. My name's Carlotta. <laughs> and so instead of saying, oh, Miss Miller, <laughs> you know, Lillian is wearing red, I, I just like... I didn't know what to say. I was, and I was younger, and I said, "Oh well, well, no one's wearing red." Thinking, "What am I going to do when she shows up?" Yeah. And there's Lillian in a red beaded dress, which actually got cut ironically. So that was my introduction to, to Ann Miller. And when she, I had read. This is sort of a. I'm not this quick usually, but I had as a kid. I picked up a copy of Miller's High Life her autobiography oh. in the Salvation Army in downtown Alcohol and read it. It was a scream. Everybody loves the theater should read Miller's Highlight if you can find a copy. And I remember thinking, in it, she talked about how she was had, was, had been reincarnated as, and that she had been an Egyptian princess. Oh. So in this moment, this awkward, I should wear red moment, I said, hey, Anna, would there be anything in having Carlotta Maybe she believes in reincarnation and maybe she was Egyptian or something and maybe she wears lapis lazuli with a lotus or something beaded on it. And she says, keep talking. <laughs> so that's what we did, ironically. I love that. Isn't that funny? So when she came, we had, the, we sent the dress, uh, it was made by uh, Werner Yuriko, who's a genius. And we sent the mock-up to LA because it was a beaded dress. So we, you know, the timing, the paper mill, like rehearsed for a week and a half and then yeah. on stage in tech. So when she came to her fitting, there's the first time she's seen the dress in color with the beads on it. And I put Lillian's dress in the fitting room on a mannequin and they were both in spotlights because I thought I gotta pay, I'm gonna have to pay the piper. I can, I didn't confess the truth to her yeah. about what. And she says, um, Who's wearing that? And I said, I said, oh, Lillian Montevecchi. She said, she's gonna look great in that, but I love my gown. And that was the end of it. So I, you know, it could have been nuclear war. Yes. <laughs> but it was not. In fact, I have to say, she was absolutely 
Oh my god! I mean, that I don't have as many great stories as, of course, as the ensemble and the people that were there every night. But she was, um, she was, uh, what you'd expect and more. Yeah, her number. I, I mean, that yeah. one piece was yeah. unbelievable. I'm so glad I got to saw it. To yeah, see it. yeah. There's a story about her. She was in the. I hope it's okay if I tell this. Yes. She was in the wig room. It was the first preview, and they hadn't worked out the schedule. You know, eventually the wig people would go to principal rooms and put the hair on but in this case it was a bit of chaos and so everybody just went to the hair room so there's Anne she's sitting there with all the chorus girls and it's a you know wig rooms are it's the ultimate kiki and usually what they're talking about is who has a big penis <laughs> right so that's the tone of the conversation and Anne, Anne Miller says somebody says oh and we apologize this is very inappropriate for you know, to be just talking like this in front of a legend, and Ann Miller says, "That's okay, honey. All my husbands had big dicks." <laughs> I love <laughs> so that's that. how that's what she was like. She was, you know, shot shot from the hip. She had she had confidence that just radiated. You know, oh. and that was part of I think her her gift. And you're right. You know, every night at, in in the middle of at the end of I'm still here, they stood up. Oh, you know, right in the middle of the show. Yeah. And she stood there and blew kisses at the audience. It was completely, when you think of it, inappropriate for the yeah. piece. And yet, as an event, it was, you know, once in a lifetime. Because that song, she emulated that. Yeah. She is that yeah. song. She, uh, after um, the show closed, within a month, I think, or a couple months later, Radio City had been closed for a huge renovation for like a year and they were reopening the hall and they were doing a concert televised concert and they they had somebody knew that she had just sang that song at the paper mill and they called her and said miss miller would you fly to new york and uh and you know recreate that for this concert because it was such an incredible moment yes for the it people was that saw it so she called me up and she said hey honey i'm sure that gown is a mess but is there any way i could get my hands on it and I said, absolutely, I got it uh, out of storage. We had it refurbed. And the thing that I'll never forget about her, and it's a, it's a, it was a, a good lesson for me and maybe a good lesson for the people that are listening to, the, to this. She wrote, not only did she write me, she called me twice, wrote me, which never happens, and called me again after the concert to thank me. So you knew that she understood that this was just not her right. As, right. a, as a movie star, I would have done it, you know, I loved her so much, I would have done it and not expect, I didn't expect anything, but she paid forward her gratitude in a very significant way. And that oftentimes is, does, doesn't happen. No, Understandably, you know, we're... No, we're, but I mean, it's two seconds to, now it's mm -hmm. so easy to send yeah, an email. Exactly. I mean, just do something, drop a card mm -hmm. in the mail, but mm -hmm. these are just common... I think common courtesies and good yeah. lessons. I had an experience. Uh, Wendy Waring, you know, who was a, I always call him the the A list Broadway, of course, you know, beautiful, stunning, six feet tall, oh, showgirl. Yeah, one of those. And uh, we had done. Um, she was uh, in Pippin, a production of Pippin that I did at the Paper Mill. The last thing I did there, actually. And she called me years later, and she said. Um, Greg, it's Wendy Waring, and I couldn't believe it. She had to find my phone number. It wasn't like we had been in touch or had, you know, other than I, I, I know that I loved her right. and, and loved being in her company. And she said, oh, I had a costume fitting today. And she's, this is a message. 
And I just made me think about how much care you took and how beautiful I felt. All the things that you aspire to have be the outcome of a fitting room experience. And I wish I'd saved that message because oh. I thought, boy, I want this on my tombstone. Yes. And it was just a, a kindest thing, you know, that she took the time. She had to get my number. She had to, to you know, that, and it, so somehow in that room, in those fittings that we had for that production of Pippin, it, 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 it had meaning for her. And so it ultimately had incredible meaning for me, you know. I had a, 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 a million years ago, again, another Pippinal story. I was working with an actress named Nancy Bell, just out of college, and she was playing Estella in um, Great Expectations. Mm. They had done an adaptation, a play. And we had the fitting. And a play? What it was those? A, Yeah, I never, yeah. It's <laughs> the only one I ever got asked to do. And um, we were in the fitting, and it was a lot of, you know, it's Estella. She's like the fashion, the, the, if somebody's going to be dressed up in Great Expectations, it's Estella. Right. And she didn't say much. She was quiet and easy to collaborate with, but there wasn't a lot of back and forth. And at one point, she was like, oh, I feel faint. And she had to go to the bathroom and get herself together. And then she didn't say much when it was over. And I, and I, I literally thought, oh, I guess I, I was disappointed. I thought, yeah. you know, here we're making all this stuff. And it's the one, you know, a lot of it was rented and put together. This is the one thing we were. So anyway, and she was lovely, but there wasn't that spark, I didn't think. Ten years later, I'm up at Williamstown, and Nancy is dating somebody in a show, and we were sitting on the porch of a you know, beautiful old hotel there, and she said, do you remember my fitting for Great Expectations? I said, yeah, I do, actually. <laughs> she, said, did you, you, she said, do you remember that I had to go to the bathroom? I said, yeah, yeah, you were faint, as I remember. She said, oh, no, I wasn't faint. I was so overcome by that this could be happening. It's that thing we talked about. How did I land in this room with this man and these makers and these clothes where I feel like a queen and I just couldn't, I didn't know how to be. I didn't know how to respond and I had to take myself apart and literally sob in a urinal until I got myself back together to go in and finish. And I told her, I said, boy, that is, I remember it so clearly because I remembered it exactly the opposite of what you're describing happened wow. in that fitting room. So I think that there is something, you know, there's a lot of mysteries in that experience and you should never uh, take what happens. The story's not told, you know, until, it, it was funny, I was listening to um, Lee and uh, Josh. Yes. The, the interview, and they talked about, you know, I, had given that sketch to Lee on the opening of Elf because it was the first time he had originated. He had his own costume oh. with his name in the waistband. And I, you know, I did it because I love him and uh, I thought, you know, he had, he had brought, he had been very kind about sketches. And so I didn't do it, but I didn't, I didn't understand that, what it meant to him in the moment. Yeah. But because you interviewed him years later, you know, now I get that, that, that it had, a greater meaning. Well, he was telling about the frame that it was in. <laughs> I mean, it was like a big deal. Yeah. Well, speaking of your artwork, your, your I don't know, is it called graphic art? or I mean, your renderings are also pieces of work. Oh, thank you. And do you do that for yourself, for the uh, design team? I mean, what is the purpose for you to do such a detailed mm. rendering before it goes into, into the, the shop? 
It is a it is a funny paradox in a way because of course, other than the actor and the maker and maybe the producer who's paying for it, the director who's agreeing to it, it's not they're not seen by a lot of people and and so I do it because it I'm a person who uh, I have oh boy I have terrible insomnia I'll start with that. Yeah because I'm a worrier. I worry about everything. And I remember, not only do I remember skirts, I also remember <laughs> what people say in a meeting. So I'm always, and, it, and sometimes the comment in passing may not even, like I, I mentioned this earlier, may not even be ultimately where you're going. Uh, but I remember that it was said because it has meaning. Uh, so I'm, when I'm creating these, the, the sketches and the clothes, I'm trying to mix master uh, the, the writer's passion, the director's passion, the choreographer's passion and needs and my desires and what I think the actor will, how what's going to be a, a fulfilling experience for the audience in terms of, it's so many things. So by sitting down with a piece of paper for two to seven hours, I'm ashamed to admit, sometimes if I've glued sequins all over everything, it can take a long time. <laughs> But I'm really living with it, you know, and trying to answer as many questions as I can. And, and then if the actor says, should we fit this or just turn it into a swing coat? I'm, I'm, I'm more willing, I think, to go there because I know that I have, I made the decisions. I, I, and maybe they aren't, the, I, I don't hold the sketch too precious. Okay. I don't try to just, Real, I understand that the ultimate goal is to put something on an actor's back to help them tell a story. That is, and every designer will tell you the same thing. So even though I spend a lot of time with the sketches, I don't think they're that important. I mean, you know, I, I can, Aladdin is a good example. A single costume, of which there are 300 in the show, may have... 30, 40, 50 decisions that have to be made. What kind of bead, what shape of bead, what color of bead, how much, much how many, the shape. The, and if I've drawn that all out, I've answered 40 of the 50 questions that are gonna come my way. So that if there's only 10 questions left times 300, it's still a lot of questions, yeah. if you know what I mean. So um, I do it because it gives me pleasure, I guess. and. Uh, I think a, a, a nice perk of it is that you have a memory of, uh, of the experience. When I look at the sketch, I remember the thought process, the outcome. Sometimes, uh, you know, drawing and painting a lot can get you into trouble, too. If the sketch is a little more amorphous and casually uh, presented, um, you know, you're not expecting you know, I, I wouldn't use the word work of art, but you've used it, so I'll, yeah, I'll reference they it. Are. You know, sometimes they're like, that's the dress? Like, they're, they're seeing something in the sketch that isn't my intention. Oh, okay. Because the, maybe the face is pleasing to them, or you know what I mean? Yeah. So uh, it, it's gotten me into trouble. As much, maybe not as much trouble to drawing and painting, because I think it puts people off in a way. They think, oh, he's decided everything. Well, I'm not needed here oh, do you know right. what I mean yeah. that, that can happen um, so or maybe you've drawn it and, and you, you're on the same page but they see something in the sketch remember one time I had done it was a play us ah, so you have them too 
Uh, and it was, I had drawn the character bald because I just, in my mind, I didn't know what actor was playing the part. I just am thinking maybe it'll be a bald guy. Yeah. And I noticed that that director, when I showed him the sketch, kept putting his hand over the face. And I said, uh, you know, why do you keep doing that? And he said, well, the guy we're going to have play this has a lot of hair. And so I'm so distracted by the fact that he's bald that I'm thinking, but I'm really just talking about his pants and his shirt and his vest. And, you know, it has nothing to do with, yeah, whether it yeah. has hair, but uh, you know, people get they they see it as me trying to illustrate the character, and that isn't really what I'm doing. I'm not an illustrator, you know. Yeah, you're it's illustrating funny. the costume or yeah. the clothing. And I have to say, you know, it's funny. A lot of times, people think like the sketches that I love the most are the exact opposite of what I do. Like, I don't know if you've, have you ever seen the William Ivy Long sketch? They're just like they just come out of like a bring out it's just motion and color yeah you know they're there they are and I think uh, he knows I, I can't speak for William but he is self-assured you know he is it's not like he's I don't think he goes into the fitting room thinking I don't know what this is but the sketch is very loose and joyful and I love that I wish I you know, you always want to be what you're not. Right. And I think, oh, God, if I could just sit down and be joyful. Wouldn't that be amazing? You're very joyful. <laughs> I think you're very joyful. Well, maybe in a, in a more uptight way. Oh, more uptight. <laughs> Do you collaborate with the wig people a lot? Uh, to say, wig people? To say, like, design-wise, this, like, this is the 20s, so this is the type of dress, and she should have an updress up yeah. thing. I do, but uh, really, truthfully, they are obviously... Uh, I always treat the wig designer, uh, they are an artist in their own right, and, and I couldn't, if I had to sit down with a wig block and set it and comb it out and put it in an updo or whatever, the, I couldn't do it. Right. And uh, I don't look at people's face in the same way. I, I, I like, when I look at your beautiful face, I just see your face. I'm not imagining you with a wig that's asymmetrically parted and marcelled. Do you, oh, know, you yes. know what I'm saying? Yes. I, uh, I look at your body and think, oh, you know, this kind of shoulder proportion to the waist, the legs are, you know, long and from the, from the hip to the knee and short from the, I'm looking at all that stuff, but I don't, uh, because it's not my expertise. So I put hair in the sketch and of course I have ideas about what I think would be pleasing with the clothes, but I let the wig person, uh, I know a lot of designers are much more, um, I don't want to use the word rigid, but they really, really have a, uh, they set up for a certain total look and that's what they want to achieve. But I don't do that. I, you know, I often work with Josh uh, Marquette, oh, yes. who is, is Casey's husband, and, um, and then David Brian Brown, uh, I love as well. I mean, Charles LePoint, they're all amazing. Oh, yes. They're all geniuses, really. Um, and sometimes I can give you an example of uh, this wasn't even didn't come from me but Tom Schumacher we did a little review called On the Record I think it had four it was a Disney a Disney yes thing. four principles four ensemble two and two of each so four and four four men four women and there was a, a beautiful African American girl in the ensemble and Tom said you know uh, wouldn't it be what would you think about her having an afro poof? And I was thinking, well, sure. I don't have a, you know, she wore her hair that way herself. You know, she put it up in a, in a right. ponytail and it would make a kind of shape. And so anyway, we got to Cleveland, we're out of town and David Brown says, you're gonna kill me. 
And I said, why did I tell you? He says, well, I didn't do an apple proof. What I said, well, what did you do? And now I can't remember who that, it might have been Rihanna. I can't remember who it was. It was, it, you know, this was many years ago, but it was somebody who, of, who was African-American and they had this awesome, straightened, little, sassy, supercut, not in the supercut yeah. way, but in the, you know, Sassoon way. He said, he, he, so he pulls this wig out of the wig storage thing. And I was like, oh my gosh, you know, Tom said Afro proof. And I, I don't know, I would have maybe had a conversation and, but that looks amazing. Anyway, the, the, when the actor put it on, the dancer put it on, she screamed in with joy. When Tom saw it, he was absolutely elated. It was the perfect decision. It was, it was not at all what was asked for, but it was exactly what was asked for. Oh, if you know what I mean. Yes, I do. So I think that's a tricky thing. Sometimes you have to, you have to listen to what's not being said or interpret what's being said, but maybe not as it's described. You know, mm -hmm. so it's a, it's. I don't want to say you have to be a soothsayer, but in a way. Uh, you're, you're always trying to second guess and sometimes you second guess wrong you know but it is uh, I always think if people could do what I do they should do it you know like when I'm getting like it's green it's this it's quarter inch that right. I think well I, I listen to those words and I try to think what do they really mean and if they really mean that they want exactly that I think well maybe you should do it you know or or sometimes that is exactly right. It is the perfect tear page. You know, like Jerry's, Jerry Mitchell is a, a good example. He gives you a lot because he's visual. Yeah. He gives you tear pages and, you know, it's fun. I love, there's nothing like a meeting with Jerry Mitchell. I mean, it's just like you laugh and a fount of information, right? But you do have to sort of think, Oh, this thing he really means specifically exactly this idea. Okay. This. Yeah. And some of it is just, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And and then you're you have to feel free to come back and say, how about I see? I think what you really loved about this was the fact that it sort of telegraphs that, but I found a different way of saying it. What do you think? So you can have a dialogue that is, uh, you know, hopefully leading to the same conclusion. Absolutely. Right. I like that. So, do you find that awards are important? Because I mean, you have two Tony have Awards, to. and we jokingly we need to get you a third one. But uh, <laughs> I mean, there's so much competition, and uh, mm. some people say that Kinky Boots was your best work, and yet you didn't win for it. So, where do you lie when it comes to awards and accolades? Well, I'm not giving them back, so I'm not going to say they're not important. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't say. I didn't. You know, use a have a political cause and use the moment to. Uh, <laughs> uh, but you know it's funny um, I was not nominated as you know for Aladdin and it was the one time I have to say in my life where I thought well I'm going to get nominated for this I mean it's been five years of my life it's got you know quick changes and beating and color and not that those things necessarily equal good design but right. it is you know it's showy in that way and then, and then I wasn't nominated and that's probably the only time in my life. Usually, I'm pretty simple. Like, if I get nominated, I'm happy. If I don't, I'm happy for the people that did. You know, we know, like this year, Paul Tazewell is one of my dearest and oldest friends. Anne Roth, I absolutely worship, to, just beyond. That's, mm. that's not, that word isn't old enough. 
Uh, Jeff Mashey, uh, I admire him so much. He brings, he comes kind of from the fashion world, and I love how he turns the box a little bit. I think sometimes oh. you know, when you just do costumes all the time, you're not so aware of of trends and things that you know make a character seem relevant, even yeah. though the play is set in the 30s. You know, so I, I, I admire him hugely. So I, I, I truth, I hope I, I think I'm being honest when I say that when I am looked past, I'm glad. I don't expect. Uh, I've never. I've lost more. I think I've lost five times to my two wins. Uh, and did you say you lost every time to William Levy Long? Oh yeah, every time. Um, well, wait a minute. Let me think. Yeah. No, one time. Oh, last year. Who won last year? It was Kathy Zuber did. So oh, up okay. until that, yeah, yeah. I, I almost lost to William, and uh, and then last year Kathy won. And uh, and I always think, you know, uh, I applaud with equal joy for them I, I really do I, I remember this was a good lesson for me um, years a million years ago when they were doing Millie I had interviewed for it and um, my very dear friend Bob Perziola got hired to do it out of town and then he didn't end up bringing the show in uh, Marty Packer Venus ended up doing it and in that transition time uh, I kept hearing from people they're gonna call you you're gonna call you I think well they're not calling <laughs> And when and then uh, Marty did it, and um, I, you know, he's another one. He and Anne, you know, that I just, uh, you know, don't have words to tell how how much regard I have for. He's passed, obviously. Um, but anyway, when I went to see it, I thought, oh, this is delightful. I love this. Yeah. But I also thought I didn't have to do this. You know what I'm saying? I do. I got to do this. I got to be drowsy. Millie was like a. It was so I found it I keep using the word joyful and, and I, uh, I just thought it was great I was so glad for Marty Marty won the Tony for it but I didn't sit there thinking I wasn't sour and maybe that's one thing I, I'm, I'm not I'm terrible self-esteem but that's one thing I do like about myself I I um, I didn't sit there thinking I, I thought this wasn't for me this this plate got mm. passed and this wasn't for me and uh, and I really am so I'm proud I got to sit in the audience and see it, you know. So I don't, except for, now going back to Aladdin, that was hard, uh, only because, and you know, uh, Linda Cho won that year, and I love her, and I'm so glad for her. Yeah. I mean, you know, she uh, works often with Darko, who I think is amazing, and I'd love to work with him one day, but, um, but for the community that make costumes in New York, it's, the truth is, you know, if, if we were around when they did the original Follies, for instance, that's never going to probably happen again, where there's that kind of wherewithal financially, where you can go, and this, you know, the, uh, Florence Klotz, who designed it, had Barbara uh, doing the whole thing. Yeah. And, you know, it was a, a, an, a phantom, these big, 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 big shows that employ, you know, in my part of the industry, all of the people that you want to work with, yeah, you know, absolutely. the stars yeah. of the drape, the drapers and the makers and painters and beaters and all those people. So Aladdin comes along and I thought, oh my God, we were in 28 shops, if you include the cobblers and the milliners and everything, doing, you know, this lavish event and it was looked past. Maybe, I don't know why, I mean, that's not my, I, I couldn't begin to say, uh, um, 
I hope that the design was worthy of, an, of a nomination, but, but um, I think maybe people think, oh, well, they have the wherewithal, so that's no big deal. But they don't know that it took five years yeah. and 23 jobs passed by to make it happen, you know. So anyway, awards. That's the only, I, I'm over, I'm, I'm, I'm sounding paranoid a little bit, but no. But that, that was the one time I did think, wow, really? Yeah. Well, yeah. it said you'd have uh, self-esteem issues, and I mean, you're decorated with uh, awards, and you have self-esteem issues. It's, uh, it's always comforting to see people that have a certain amount of success that they still yeah. are insecure about things. Well, you know, it, it's funny. One thing I love about this and, uh, uh, is that it is a, it's a lifelong education. You know, you never, in fact, if anything, as you get older, you realize how, that you know less than you thought you knew when you were in your 20s, yes. right? Yes. There's a kind of arrogance of youth which you need to have to, to make a career, to yeah. be successful. I miss that arrogance. Yeah, right? It's a gift. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think that part of my neuroses is, is a good quality for this job because I'm always, uh, it's not that I'm always second-guessing because when I think I'm right, I think I'm right. But in terms of all the gray areas, which let's face it, it's not most of most of life is gray areas. Yes. It's not black and white. Those things I examine. I really um, try to. I also try to give people their dignity. I never want to leave a room where I think, oh, even if I'm upset or if somebody's done something where I think, oh, you've got to be kidding. I try to never lash out in a way. I'm not a yeller. I'm in fact. When I go out of town, if terrible things happen and they're cutting stuff and they're changing stuff, and I, I never am emotional. I just go in and I think, okay, new problem. We got to solve this problem and we got to do it quickly. So I don't. It's it's a it's a a, a real. It's just something about my nature. I, I have a slow metabolism. I have a, I I really hunker down and address the problems as I can. Um, you know, That's not I'm quality. not. A, I don't live in an emotional. You know, yeah. chaotic, extravagant. You know, uh, although I laugh easily, so that's nice. that's a good. <laughs> so we're gonna slowly wrap this uh, interview up, and but before we do, I have a hello f for you from Roy, also known as oh. Bianca Del Rio. Oh my God! Which I thought was lovely that uh, he was like, "Please tell him I say oh, hello." Oh, that's amazing! You know, he just... he started off at Viteras. He was a first hand a stitcher. Or, First hand to a Coco, who now has, after Matera's closed, Coco opened her own shop, um, which is a br she's brilliant. And so they have a lifelong, a real, their family, those oh, two. Yeah. And I wish I, 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 I'd like to call Roy my family because I think about him that way. But he, uh, you know, he's, he's made a, a film called Hurricane Bianca. Oh, yes. I think that's the name of it. Yes, it is. Yeah. And he reached out to have me design a dress that he wears in the very last scene of the film when he becomes a hurricane, and uh, and Coco made it, and uh, we did it as you know out of love for Roy and respect for his incredible wit and career, and so oh my God, well it, now he'll know that I said, um, oh yeah, tell him I said hello. I definitely will. I'm, I'm seeing his show this uh, this weekend. Oh good. So I'm yeah. very excited. Yeah. So if you had to pick one moment that you'd say was a career highlight or something that was really special, uh, what would come to mind? I have this one, okay? Mm -hmm. And I didn't think about it beforehand, even though you sent me the questions. 
On opening night of Sideshow, which is my Broadway debut, and I worked on that for probably about five years, off and on in workshops, and uh, the design was, I, I always say about Sideshow, good, bad, and different, there was nothing that we did that was not absolutely considered. Mm. When people say, oh, they didn't think about this, they didn't think about that, we thought about it. <laughs> yeah. So when it came about, uh, it was all made at Matera. It's the only time in my career. By the time uh, Flower Drum Song came along, Barbara had passed away. So, uh, or she was alive. And um, but I was just doing the job. I didn't f ever sit down and think, "Wow, this took 15 years to get to this place." Mm. I mean, 15 years after moving to New York. Yeah. So on opening night, we went through the previews. We went through a very. In those days, they used to the tack was a month. You know, yeah. now it's a week, 10 days, if you're lucky. Um, and I started to cry that morning. My family had come, my mom and dad had come for the opening. And uh, because I finally thought, it's like giving birth, I guess, to a child in a way. Not that I, I'll, I apologize to all the women out there that are like, you don't know the first thing about giving birth. Uh, but that's... I, I started to cry, and by the time the show started, I had cried so much that literally I felt like my tear ducts were throbbing out of my face. I mean, they, I thought, you have to stop crying. This is, this is too much crying. Yeah. <laughs> this isn't good for a person. And I was actually sitting on the steps of the Richard Rogers because I had given my tickets to my associate and his date, and, and then my mom and my dad were there. So the, you know, the thing played itself out, the show did and I, I loved it so much and I came around up the steps to the back where my folks were standing and they of course were having you know they here they have this kid who uh, moved to New York they, they didn't have any concept of what I really was doing uh, they were worried for me they were afraid for me being here they wanted me to come back with with love they were completely supportive but Anyway, so I'm standing on the steps. I felt very alone, even though I was surrounded by people, and they were, you know, it was right at the end of the standing ovation, of course, and my mom looked over, and my mom, you have to know her for this to really have impact, but she's the kind of mom who was not a physically huggy person. My whole family, we're Barneses, we're not huggy. We're not, uh, <laughs> we're not Italian, you know? Yes. <laughs> and my mom looked over, and I just saw this look in her face, you know, the, how did this, she was just thinking, how did this happen? And Vinnie Liff, the wonderful, amazing Vinnie Liff, was, who Tara talked about, was standing right behind her. He was sobbing. My mom was sobbing, and I was sobbed out. I didn't have, there was no moisture left. And I saw Vinnie Liff gather my mom up, not cry, uh, into his arms. And my mom, uncharacteristically, just hugged him back. And I thought, isn't it, a, <clears throat> sorry, isn't it a miracle that we get to work in an art form that, where we have this kind of experience, this kind of emotionally potent, loving, just a stranger hugging a stranger, and yeah. a stranger that doesn't like to be hugged. <laughs> and they just were in each other's arms, and I, I'll just never forget that. I thought, boy, I'm so lucky, you know, to be um, part of this community. Well, I'm lucky to know you. I'm lucky <laughs> to have you on this podcast, and Broadway's lucky to have you. Oh, 
that to quote you, this is a joyful interview. Oh, thank you. Thank you. If you could end this with any song from your life or career, what would it be? Wow. This I did think about. Um, because <laughs> I've listened to all the podcasts. I know. I, I love that you're a fan. Lisa, Lisa, <laughs> I'm totally a fan. Lisa Gaida was like, you should interview Greg Barnes. I was uh, like, would he do it? She's like, Brad, he's a fan. I was like, <laughs> I, I was so like, I was so like, touched. Oh, well, you know, it's funny that, of course, the early ones, I knew everybody right. from talk. And then, and then as they went on, I realized I don't know everybody, but I, I, as I listened to them, I thought, boy, our experiences are so parallel. I feel like I know these people that I haven't had the, great honor of working with and many of them of course I have too so I'm going to choose Alice and Emily singing I Will Never Leave You uh. if I could um, it's maybe maybe I thought there were so many things I would have you know it's that's it's, it's like Sophie's choice to pick something right. that has a, to sign yourself out of, of this with but I thought in lieu of talk closing I thought you know we will never leave that experience. No. It's part of our DNA now. It's part of the history, the texture of our career and our life. And um, I think that that song in some way sums that up really beautifully. Done. Thank you very much. <laughs> like a fish plucked from the ocean Tossed into a foreign stream Always knew that I was different Often fled into a dream I ignored the raging currents Right against the tide I swam But I floated with the question Will love me as I am? Like an odd exotic creature on display inside a zoo Hearing children asking questions Makes me ask some questions too Could we bend the laws of nature? Could a lion love a lamb? Who could see beyond this surface? Who will love me as I am? Who will ever Flowers or a telegram Who could proudly stand beside me Who will love me as I am Like a clown whose tears cause laughter Trapped inside the center ring Even seeing smiling faces I am lonely ponder 